What's up, everyone? This is Illiterate. My name is Evan. My name is Taylor. I read some books this week. I watched a movie this week. We're starting a two-parter series. We are covering the master, Spielberg. As adapteur, we are covering the man, Steven Spielberg. Uh, I watched a uh, wonderful documentary on HBO called Spielberg by Susan Lacey. And I had done some research and uh, I've read Jaws in the past. I've read Catch Me If You Can. Yes, we're both we're both huge cat. We're we're both mutually Catch Me If You Can fans. Uh, We saw the stage production of Catch Me If You Can (laughs) in uh, Charleston, South Carolina a a few years ago. Uh, But yeah, so we're going to just jump right into everything he's done, how in the world he's been able to do all of this and maybe what all this stuff is based on because it's not original. You know, he's not just some idea man who, you know, like he didn't originate all of these things. It's actually a surprising amount of this is adaptation and Mm -hmm. playing with ideas and what his lens really is made up and what that does to the material that he that he attacks. Yeah, Um, I think it's a really interesting point of view. Mm -hmm. And the thing that he pioneered in terms of the point of view what's called the new Hollywood era, the mid 1960s to the early 1980s. And I guess the big premise behind this was that the director rather than the studio system was taking the key role. It wasn't like, oh, that's an MGM production. It's like, no, that's a Martin Scorsese film. Yeah. And so that the 70s he, are, were a rambling time for <laughs> for uh, for cinema. Uh, and you had auteurs really just going off the, a new wave of, of going off and making films in ways that had never been done before. Right. Uh, and, it, you know, it ushered in a completely new era, like you're saying. Remind you, Jaws is 75. Mm-hmm. This is a wild period that Spielberg and his buddies are on the forefront of. And it changed the front of the art form really story, just story, period. Because one of the main things that he changed, he was the creator of the first summer blockbuster, like you said, Jaws. There was never such a thing like that before him. And then when you're talking about riding the wave, he created these big escapist films and then also dabbled in films of very serious yeah. human issues. So he he's done it all. And just as an example off of that is Jurassic Park and Schindler's List are done in the same year. His 1993 <laughs> yeah. is bananas. I mean, can you imagine the jump in that material? Uh, yeah. Th- <laughs> Working on both almost some of it is at the same time. Simultaneously. We'll, we'll, yes. we'll get to all that. Yeah, of course. So that's um, also uh, highest grossing film director in history. He's made the most money. So his net worth is between three and seven billion. We don't know because <laughs> he gets so many random residuals from things and oh it'd be impossible gosh. to parse it together. But as of now, I believe 34 films. So let's just jump in. What is he all about? Born in Ohio, December 18th, 1946. So his 74th birthday is coming up. He's getting up there. Gosh. Yeah. It's from an Orthodox Jewish family. They moved to New Jersey And then to Arizona, he was in a Hebrew school for a bit. He said he was embarrassed as a seven, eight, nine-year-old by the perception of his parents' practices Mm. and was bullied in high school for it, Mm. which then comes around later with Schindler's List we'll get to where he's re-accepting his Jewish heritage and coming to understand it. But the, the film stuff came around age 12. The apocryphal story, the first home movie was a train wreck with Lionel train sets And then he was in the Boy Scouts. That's a big part of his life. But he got his photography merit badge and his dad's still camera was broken. So he asked the scout leader if he could use a movie camera and made a little nine minute Western film. 
and then got the merit badge for photography. But the way the way this camera came about was because his mom actually got it as a present for his dad on a camping trip. And Stephen was like, oh, can right. I be the family photographer? And then the very next year at age 13, he made a 40 minute war film with his high school friends and won a prize for it. There's Maybe footage of him making like this. Um, and there, there's I've seen behind the scenes of him actually putting this <laughs> together. It's kind of it's, it's wildly inspiring. I mean, and it looks it looks yeah. just like it looks just like what me and my friends were doing. What, you know, kids across America are still doing every. every mm-hmm. day. I mean, it, it, it's just it's beautiful to see it. And like, oh, my God, that kid actually did grow up to do like you can just see it all come together around him. It's really amazing. It's like he had it from the beginning, from, like I said, right, from age exactly. 12. And then into high school, he makes 15 more amateur films, although they're yeah. much more than what most kids would do as an amateur. So at age 16, he made this two hour and 20 minute sci-fi film called Firelight. Oh my gosh. Made for $500, which he borrowed from his dad. It actually screened at a local Phoenix cinema and he earned the budget back plus $1. So he made a yes. dollar. In the black baby. (laughs) I think he said 500 people came and maybe somebody accidentally gave him $2. I mean, what a success it paid for itself. (laughs) Well, that's also, it's like, that's what most kids don't get that at all is like, oh, it is a business and you want to sell. So I read this great interview with his mom where she was saying she put the letters up on the marquee and was thinking, oh, this is a nice hobby, you know, but he, he would, I think the thing that people don't realize is that he gets everybody involved. So like he did music on the clarinet for this sci-fi film that he made his mom who was a, a concert pianist transposed it into sheet music and then the high school band performed it and the drama class yes. acted in it so it's like he yes. it, that's that's what he does I and i guess that. if you could kind of speak to because he wants to be this director but it's like i think a lot of people don't even really know the film jobs what from your perspective evan does a director do well really the director is the one who decides what image makes you feel the the precise emotional uh, takeaway. So it's, is this a scary image? Is that what I need at this precise moment? If I put it up to this image, what does that say? The director is really the one who is who has to have the the vision of what the film is through line is going to be about emotionally. What does it say if I cut to her eyes as she flickers as he says something? What is that saying about what we know between the two of them? This is a person that's that's got to be incredibly intimate with human beings. I mean, this is an emotional job. This is trying to put the intangible, the things you can't put words to, into visuals. It's what makes you feel alive. And so it's a director is somebody chasing that, that feeling. And they, I guess, trying to understand the the technical side of things, then they would employ everybody else that has these. I mean, they still have artistic input, but like the the technical skills of the camera and the lighting and the editing. Exactly. So to fulfill this is that. somebody who's then, okay, they've got the vision and they've got the emotional point that they've got to get to. But he's also going to have the wherewithal to understand what that takes to get there. How many hands are in the pot of just the one image that we're going after right now? Right. How many how many people are involved? How many departments? This is somebody who's got to be able to communicate person to person. You've got to communicate an emotional takeaway. This is not a short bark and orders. It's on the it's on the list. You know, this is not <laughs> one of those types of jobs. Right. Um, so this is somebody who's really got to attack material from all perspectives. It's really got to be a bit of a cheerleader oh, that's and, beautiful. and understands yeah. what they're asking of people and why they're asking it. 
Yeah, so it seems like he's got all of it from the beginning, even in high school. He's got that leadership sensibility. I, I looked into, like I said, with this interview with his mom, because a lot of the stuff we see with these early artists in their life, they have either parents that are really encouraging or just conducive, like with Dr. Seuss, where he was basically living in a zoo, you know, and ha- and, yeah. and his parents were giving him right. the wherewithal to do it. So his parents didn't, like I said, she said, oh, it's a nice hobby. So they let him do this stuff. Right. So it's like his mom, this is a direct quote from her. Quote, when he was growing up, I didn't know he was a genius. Frankly, I didn't know what the hell he was. I'm really I'm really ashamed, but I didn't recognize the symptoms of uh, talent. I did him an injustice. I had no idea back then that my son would be Steven Spielberg. Oh my gosh. So and and just he, he did this a lot is of what I'm interested yeah, in with yeah. him. The more and more I watch these movies, the more that I'm 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 zeroed in on his view of the relationship between parent and child. Yeah, some he he's got a question about what is the relationship between parent mm-hmm. and child really mean? Where and like I said, his from? parents. What do you do with it? Yeah, they they. Like she said once she remembered. I took Stephen to the Grand Canyon. He said, "This is nice," and then he threw up. With Stephen, you held on for dear life. Like he just, it wasn't even maybe necessarily film, but it's like clearly he's doing all that, and he made fifteen films as a high schooler. But he's just doing a lot of stuff. It probably was a whirlwind, and he has siblings as well, to just get him out the door (laughs) and get him on with life. So, for example, like his dad gave him a copy of The Scarlet Letter because Steven Spielberg hates reading or hated it as a kid. Mm -hmm. So he drew a flip book of a bowler knocking down bowling pins in the corner. And Steven said in an interview that this was his first film adapted from another medium. The uh, the flip book, <laughs> which nobody else will tell you, but we'll tell you that. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. You heard it here on a <laughs> Like you said, in terms of the complications with his family. So he moved to Saratoga, California for senior year because his parents divorced. So he stayed with his father thereafter in L.A. and wanted to become a film director. And that's where the, the dissonance comes from, where his parents were holding it together Mm. I guess, like they say, for the kids, and then yeah. broke and apart and just right? missed that. Yeah, and just missed that connection in that formative. I mean, they still loved him and they cared for him and all the sure. all the stuff, but it just that definitely affected him, uh, as we see a lot of things. And this, in, you in know, and I'm I'm just people. thinking about I'm I'm thinking about what maybe his loneliness would have felt like. I mean, right there from his mom. We didn't know he was going to be who he was. Even, you know, you know, he's 17. He's still not, you know, he's still their little Steven or mm-hmm. whatever. You know, I'm thinking about now they've got their own problems. I mean, everybody does. Mm-hmm. And but they still don't know who he is. Mm-hmm. And I find that just wild. When you get down to it, I mean, this is somebody who's who's deeply, deeply <laughs> empathetic and yeah. and really found what he was built to do mm-hmm. in, in so, so many yeah. ways. Yeah. Because of that, he applies to UCLA in Los Angeles. He didn't even apply to USC because it's a private school and it's too expensive. Yeah. So he knew he yeah. couldn't do it and then was turned down at UCLA because of his grade average. He had a C. So he had to go to California State University in Long Beach and uh, they didn't have a film program. So he went for English. So it seems like, oh, well, that's the end of Stevens, you know, like, right. <laughs> there it is. But uh, he and he became an accountant. Right. <laughs> and his family was proud. <laughs> Not so fast. He gets into the film world by being an unpaid intern at 
Universal Studios in the editing department. And he's still not giving up making <laughs> these short films. So he's made this 26-minute film called Amblin that he got financing from a friend who was an aspiring producer and gave him $10,000 to mm. make it. This guy has never produced anything or wow. hired actors or anything. Yeah. The, the main actor was a librarian at the Beverly Hills Public Library. Solid choice. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, it was a silent film. Nobody speaks. So, I mean, he probably saw this quiet guy and hey, said, yeah. Sounds good. Um, <laughs> but one of the... Yeah, hey, I'm a main character in a Steven Spielberg movie. <laughs> the first okay. one. Yeah. <laughs> but this is regarded as his first thing. You know, he sh- went to film festivals. He got sh- shown to people. Yeah. There was a studio VP, Sidney Scheinberg, who was impressed by it and offered him a seven-year directing contract for television, which was the youngest person wow, ever signed for yeah. a long-term deal with the studio, just based on this work. Just for and some I, kid who's like jump, you know, like sneaking onto the lot, mm-hmm. <laughs> working in some other being department. an unpaid intern. Yeah, and get out of here. <laughs> yeah, watch my film. So, and you could tell even from the other stuff, it's like he definitely pushed himself into that position. It wasn't yeah. like oh, just luck, and he got a seven-year contract. No. So he drops out of college to direct TV. He didn't Solid finish choice. At, at Long Beach. So now we'll kind of go through the decades. This is the 70s. We'll skip back a little bit. 1969. It was the first thing he did in Hollywood was a segment of a pilot for this show called Night Gallery, which was a horror anthology. Mm. Um, so he's just doing one of those little pieces of yeah, the anthology. Yeah. The actress in it, though, is Joan Crawford, who is this no massive way massive classic star she's older at the time but she has already done like she was from the beginning of hollywood she has done thus far 31 silent pictures and 59 sound features that's bananas he's what (laughs) she's absolutely horrified well she's like i cannot be with this 21 year old first time (laughs) director doing this she 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 well so she gave him a chance and just recognized she was like i was worried because he's not experienced but she said experience does not always equal intuitive inspiration Mm. and she wrote him a note at the time recognizing his talent and being like it doesn't matter there's these guys that they have quote-unquote experience but they're horrible and here's somebody who really has it and they ended up being close friends until she died in 77 Mm. so eight years later but just crazy that he befriended this lady who is 50 plus years his senior and has seen it all from the beginning i love i love her reaction i can't be in here (laughs) and then she like listens to herself and then like okay let me see what this is about and then like gives him the time of day Mm -hmm. and reassesses and like my god look at this he can do it wow this is great and god she shepherds in the king of cinema and she you know she, she doesn't even know by the time she's gone you know, like he's he's on his way, but wow, oh my god, yeah, crazy. Um, that is beautiful. I mean, sometimes I mean, I I just I just want to acknowledge her her arc there of just like <laughs> I can't do this with who is he? Well, all right, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's yeah. beautiful. I love it, it. It is beautiful. So because of that, he ends up getting a few more TV episodes, does some feature length television pieces, and then was signed by Universal again to do four TV films. And such begins the adaptation Mm. game. (laughs) So here we are. 
his first one was a film called Duel, which is Duel. a cult classic. Uh, based I love on, this film. It's yeah. the predecessor for Jaws. If you mm-hmm. haven't seen it, it's so fun. It is a man running in his little white car from this monstrous, this horrible truck, this tractor trailer running him down. And mm-hmm. it's just a fate. You, there's no driver. It's just, just a horn that just <laughs> chases you. And it is totally, it's, it's him working out the visual language of what will become Jaws and just a couple mm. years. I love the movie. It's such a little popcorn movie. I can't recommend it enough. Yeah, for a TV, for a made-for-TV oh, yeah. film. It was based on a short story by Richard Matheson, who's the no same way. guy who wrote I Am Legend. Oh, no. I had no idea. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. That's yeah. amazing. So that's, that's, what it's, that's what it's based on. Um, yes. And then the next TV film he does is called Something Evil, and it's about this kid who's possessed wow. by a demon. It was because, so not quite an adaptation, but The Exorcist was a very popular book and hadn't mm. yet been made into the film, but right. they didn't have the rights for it. So they made mm. this other film that's very similar because they're like, oh, exorcisms are popular because of the oh, book. Oh, d- this is his knockoff. Awesome. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then did some other things, a pilot of a show that was never picked up on. But his first actual mm-hmm. now not TV film, his film is called the Sugarland Express. Yes. And yes. adaptation based on a real life incident he saw from a newspaper. It's about a husband and wife trying to outrun the law. Did poorly at the box office, but again, you're talking about he's getting a sense for what is Steven Spielberg? What how does he do things on film sets? But this is where he met this guy named John Williams who becomes one of the most amazing <laughs> composers of all music of all films of all time. He worked with him on this. John Williams had done a few things before, but this is his first time with Steven. And then thereafter, it's um, magic. It's magic because in 1975, Jaws. We're on, on, baby. And this is based on a novel by Peter Benchley, yet another adaptation. And they are giving it, the producers, to this 26-year-old college dropout who has made (laughs) a couple things. (laughs) Um, and you know how you know what you know how it goes for them uh months and months over schedule millions of dollars (laughs) over budget uh lost confidence from the crew almost shut down multiple times i mean it is one i mean if you don't know it is the classic uh hollywood failure story Except it's a Cinderella story because they brought it home, turned it around, <laughs> and it won a bunch of Oscars. So and, and <laughs> defined the summer blockbuster. Yes, like started literally like a new, <laughs> like a new phenomena in the medium. It set the uh, record for box office gross, the highest of all time. Made him a household name, and then gave him the autonomy to do what he wanted. But he described it like you said; it was his professional crucible. It was the do yeah. or die. The and day they stop production, the producers think, my God, finally it's over. Maybe, you know, <laughs> maybe people will forget about this and we, it will just go away. Mm-hmm. You know, like, okay, he's gone. It's over. And we're not, it's, we're not bleeding money anymore. Steven takes it away at a little pool shop. There's on, there's an editor and they edit the movie and they bring it back. And they had what they had. But the, until that time, my God. There was no way they were ever going to make their money back. There was no way they were going to ever get any other projects done. Steven was never going to work in Hollywood again. Uh, If the movie had not worked, there would be no Steven Spielberg as we know him. But he shot into the stratosphere and it allowed him to do whatever he wanted. So everybody wants him now, but he actually- Look at the magnitude, the magnitude, the weight of the shift of that. (laughs) Either you're going home. 
this is uh, this is so this this mess up is so big it's irrevocable you've ruined other careers other uh, than your own richard stanley who uh <laughs> did that we talked about the hp lovecraft episode where he just disappeared for 30 years or whatever because this is failed. it yeah. this was really it this was really it this my, <laughs> so that's the magnitude of this because uh, there's no in between there just isn't Mm-hmm. It either is a failure or it, my God, it turns into what it, what it turned into. What, I mean, what a Cinderella story. But in an interesting turn of events, he, because he has the leverage, he rejects ah, yes, a lot leverage. of propositions. It's all about the leverage. He rejects, they want, they're like, we want Jaws too. And he's like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> and then they're like, well, what about King Kong? We're doing a, another King Kong. He's like, nah. And then they're like, well, what about Superman? And he's like, no way. So all of those things could have been Steven Spielberg things that they had offered him. And he was like, I don't want to do any of them. I, I totally get I, I totally get why he doesn't want Jaws 2. Any other reasoning mm-hmm. just behind the other just because they're big properties? What is I'm just curious as to what the immediate like, well, obviously not. You I know? mean, I think it was because they were big properties and he had just yeah. been through yeah. this personal hellscape yeah. of big properties. So the next thing he does, he works with Richard Dreyfus again, who was in Jaws on this thing that he really wanted to do, that he had an idea that he spent $500 on, and it becomes Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Which is a movie about a man losing his touch with (laughs) reality and his family because he's working on something. But it is almost exactly (laughs) that film, Firelight, that he made in high school. Really? Yes. No way. Yes, there are certain things that are shot-for-shot elements of Firelight. Oh my God. And he said, I want to do it the way that I want to do it. So this comes out in 1977. It is both written and directed by him. So this is one of the rare ones that's an original, but it's almost not an original because it's an adaptation of something he already did as a Ah, kid. He he got himself. Look, (laughs) he He adapted himself. Yeah, (laughs) but he had lots of help on the rewrites. And this is one of the things where it's like, oh, he wrote it, but he's not a writer. He's a director. And so this is one of them. Does amazingly well again. But it's a smaller, more intimate, not as crazy. It's still, a, I guess, considered a summer blockbuster, but it has a certain spirituality. Yeah, so we're in that we're in that it. sophomore slump. It's yes, <laughs> but we're in that sophomore slump era here, where he's you know, it's it's a good movie, but it's no Jaws. And mm-hmm. okay, what does that mean next? Nobody's sure. This is weird, but it's good. But that's no guarantee. Yeah. So the next film, most people don't know about it. It is one of the biggest lessons of his career, he said, because it was Mm -hmm. a flop. And Mm -hmm. so the film is called 1941. Ah, Steven Spielberg loves war films. This is a war action comedy film. His friend Stanley Kubrick said it probably should have been marketed as a drama. Ah. It did profit worldwide, but did horrible in North America. So it was considered a box office bomb. And he had joked about converting it to a musical halfway into production. It just was not his forte. He was lambasting the other works that he had done in terms of Jaws and yeah. Duel with it. Interesting. We, we had mentioned in uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, we were talking about Robert Zemeckis and how he didn't get that project right away because he, was, he had a couple of bombs or things that's like, oh, this right. should do well, but it didn't. So this is one that he wrote. Right. That was one of those oh things. Gosh, and yes. he encountered Spielberg because Zemeckis was just a student at USC who barged into his office and uh, gave him the script and everything. And so Spielberg, like I said, it, it was he said the personal arrogance got in the way after his success. He did not 
seed control of the miniature sequences and the action sequences to second units and model directors, he was then saying, oh, I'm going to fix that the next time. And so sequel mania (laughs) comes into play. And so they want him to do a sequel to Close Encounters of the Third Kind. What? And I so, didn't even realize that. Yeah, yeah. Oh he, my but, gosh, so, that just but, sounds bad. But he was like, I don't want to do it. But he's like, I also <laughs> yeah. don't want Columbia Pictures to make a sequel without me like Jaws, because Lord knows right. Jaws 2, I haven't seen it, but I hear it's like, you know, the sequel's progressively Yeah, yeah, slow. it's definitely Far Cry. I have a soft spot for him, a Jaws fan, <laughs> but it's definitely Far Cry from the first one. Yeah. It's fun. It's, it's fun. It's fun. So in order to avoid this whole Close Encounters 2 nightmare, he makes his own horror treatment, but it's something different. And it's called Night Skies. And it's about aliens coming down and they're trying to communicate with livestock and then Mm. attack this human family. It's based on another adaptation, the Kelly Hopkinsville encounter in Kentucky, this story where these people claim to be attacked by these gremlin-like aliens. So he's Mm. got this in the works now. And we'll come to that as we go into the 80s. He recommends his friend John Williams to this guy who's been working on this side film. This uh, His friend has gone to Hawaii to avoid, similar to how it's like, oh God, Jaws is going to be not good. <laughs> his friend <laughs> goes to Hawaii to avoid He's it. He's exiled it, to Hawaii. Yeah. yeah. This is uh, his friend George Lucas, who he had introduced <laughs> John Williams to. And together in Hawaii, while they're waiting for Star Wars to do terrible, it ends up doing amazing, of course. <laughs> George Lucas is like, hey, I have this idea, and it's called The Adventures of Indiana Smith. Is this something you'd be interested in? (laughs) So now we move into the 80s, and they're collabing on Raiders of the Lost Ark. Here we go. (laughs) It is not an adaptation, but what it is is an homage to the serials of the golden age of Hollywood, these cliffhanger kind of escapades. Yeah, It is just a hearkening back, baby. Mm -hmm. That's all it is. It's beautiful. There is a spitball session that they recorded for three days where they go back and forth. They're like, here's we know what we want to do. Somebody has the audio recording and turned it into a transcript. So I'll post a link to that. Oh, but it's yes. Just, I would love to read that. It's just you. bizarre to see how, I mean, it's like some of it is offensive or off color or like, you know, it's kind of like the South Park writer's <laughs> room where it's like, clearly there, this isn't, this wasn't supposed it's to be blender. for anybody. I mean, yeah, yeah. it's the, yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah. like, it is just wild to see like, oh, they're actively just like, we have this kind of vague idea. Let's come up with what is this thing? This is um, three men in a room knowing millions of dollars are on the line. Uh, and they've all agreed to this illusion. Yeah. <laughs> and they blast it out. Um, so now it ends up getting into production. Steven Spielberg is supposed to be shooting this Night Skies thing that he was coming up with after Raiders of the Lost Ark. And he had been doing tests of animatronics. There was a draft of a script. There's these all these different aliens, and one of them befriends one of the sons. Um, mm-hmm. They're doing these animatronic tests. One alien has this long finger with an eerie light. But it just didn't work. So there's an amicable departure with this current writer. And like we said, Spielberg is working on Raiders. He's in Tunisia killing Nazis, blowing up planes. And he's like, I've got to get back to the tranquility, the spirituality of Close Encounters. Like we said, like, yeah. what is my yeah. sequel that I'm supposed to be doing after this turning into? So he speaks to Melissa Matheson, who was dating and then married Harrison Ford. And she read this script and broke down at the part talking about this tender, caring alien. 
So she ends up becoming the writer for the script, now known wow. as E.T. That's incredible. So that's what I had no idea. The Close Encounters 2 became. It's, I just wanted to bring all of that up to kind of show how these things turn and move and flip around and get people added on to them. They're paint. I mean, this is this is sketching, you know? They, <laughs> you, you would try these ideas. Ah, that didn't work. But this did. This didn't. We bring up uh, Roger Rabbit again, uh, tangentially. But I, I, you know, I got to see a, a documentary about original concept art mm-hmm. for for that and the guys that designed him. And it was amazing to see the different versions that they just threw at each other. Um, and they're wildly different. And they're mm-hmm. bonkers and look nothing like uh, Roger Rabbit, as we know. But there are elements that work. And it's just that process. It's that messy process of just throwing something on the wall and mm-hmm. seeing what's good about it, being able to know no insecurities. Just throw it on the wall. What works? What doesn't work? It's that beautiful, that beautiful alchemy. Um, and also all the animatronic stuff that they had spent tons of money on testing. It's like, well, we could still use that. It, we're not, we're still doing a movie about an alien, <laughs> you know, like, you know, it's not, th- and that's what that's, they can do a whole shoot as a, as just a test and it, you know, oh no, didn't work. I don't know what, we don't <laughs> know what right. this idea is yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's something to the creative process for that. So we see the logo for Amblin Entertainment is the bicycle going across the yeah. moon. But where does that, because we know that's Steven Spielberg. So that comes into the picture right now. 1981 is when he makes that production company um, uh. with a couple people. One of them who they get into the mix is Kathleen Kennedy. Here we go. She started her first film that she produced with them was E.T. So wow. she's now the president of Lucasfilm miss star wars right <laughs> person she's in, in everything man you go back yeah. and look i you know every once in a while just a great movie from the 90s you know mm-hmm. I'll, I'll watch it like i remember this she produced the role it. you know like the sixth sense mm-hmm. credits role produced by kathleen kennedy what <laughs> she's, <laughs> she's everywhere it. she's yeah. everywhere she's so, all <laughs> yeah so et comes out in 1982 based on an imaginary alien friend that Steven Spielberg had after his parents' divorce. Mm. So this is one of the f- first ones where he's really digging into his personal life subject matter that he's a lot of the stuff that happens in the script. He worked with Melissa on to become part of it. So so if we look at this, we've had this sophomore slump of him really trying to figure out, OK, what is it about? what I've got to say that works. And he's finally realizing by E.T. that it's really coming down to what he knows about. Mm-hmm. You know, if he didn't have the fire burning from the, the, the trauma of his parents' divorce, I don't know if E.T. would be compelling. And right. I don't know if he would get any of these next. Well, and they said it was he said it was the like we see Jaws, massive epic thing. Raiders of the Lost Ark, massive epic thing. It's like he was alone filming in Tunisia. He had time to think about, what do I want to do next? I don't want to do this again, (laughs) you know? So that's definitely a huge part of it. I thought what was cool with the actual production, like you're talking about the director being the emotional voice. So this was shot in chronological order, which is not done with films. You have locations, you shoot them, you have actors that can only be available at certain times. The filmmaking process is like the most economic. Everything is about the dollar. So if if this location is in the movie, throughout the movie, but it's light on the back end, well, you you better bet we're going to shoot this out and then we're done with it. Everything is economical. They use all the pieces all at once as much as possible and they shift it out and it's like a Rubik's Cube, a (laughs) three-dimensional Rubik's Cube that moves all the time and it is to the dime. So it's extremely, Uh, 
extremely uh, pricey to just say, well, we're going to shoot the first scene and then the second scene, and then we'll drive way over here, or fly people out here to shoot the fourth, you know, like. Because this is in order. No, but the reason. It's not how it's yeah. done. It's just not a, nobody, it's just never happens. It's not something never. But Spielberg never. did it for this because it's mostly a young cast, and he wanted the emotional through line to work for them as actors. He had to have a pitch. There it is. He had to have a reason. That's the reason. And that's why they did it. And And he said, especially especially for the end, he was like, I really wanted them to say goodbye to E.T. at the end. Because this is the end. It's like your real emotions as a nine-year-old or whatever is going to come in with that. the movie's over. All right. That's it. Go home forever. It's over. Yeah. (laughs) Remember that. This is the last day we're here. Yeah. So it really worked. And of course, because I'm in the adaptation Hunt, sniffing him out. Even though this is based on his life and he came up with it and all that stuff, there are a lot of comparisons to Peter Pan. So you could say Elliot is one of the Lost Boys. E.T. Mm. is Peter Pan. He can't survive yeah. on Earth, similar to emotionally can't survive right. in the world. Has to be in Neverland. I can totally see the that. scientists or the pirates. It all kind of yeah. <laughs> fits into yeah. that paradigm. Hey, he just did a sci-fi Peter <laughs> Pan. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of sci-fi, this surpassed Star Wars as the highest grossing film of all time. So I have to, this is one I have to double take too, where I'm like, wow, E.T. was like, E.T. was it, baby. <laughs> My mom yeah. loves E.T. Yeah. She'll just, me- she just melts over E.T., I swear. It's beautiful. <laughs> so he, uh, he got it for Jaws, the highest grossing film, and then he got it again, beat out his friend George Lucas for E.T., and then he holds it for 11 years until another Spielberg film comes out. Um, All right, all right. (laughs) So this is now between 1982 and 1985. He is starting, since he's got his own production company, he's starting to not necessarily be the director, but have his hand still in the movements of the film. So Poltergeist was written by Spielberg using elements of that Night Skies Close Encounters 2 stuff that he had done with, but he could not direct it because he was prepping E.T. And they said, you cannot work on this. You cannot work on two things. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) No. Um, (laughs) You're shooting it in order. It's an amazing amount of money. Do that. Yeah. (laughs) No. (laughs) Uh, The Twilight Zone, he directed at this time. And then The Goonies was a story that he had done, but was actually written by Chris Columbus, who later did directed the Harry Potter oh first film. Gosh. So that's that's where there he they are. He had there done some other are. stuff, but that's that's kind of his start is oh, you're gonna write the Goonies for me. Um, right. Because Spielberg actually had bought Chris Columbus's Gremlins script for Amblin a few years previous. No way. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. That's how I love this. Yeah, love so that's it. how he gets I love it. that Chris Columbus is this, this close-knit with him, which I didn't really have a concept of. But yeah. It seems so clear now. Spielberg keeps everybody Gremlins close. Yeah. yeah. And then also he directs The Temple of Doom, which is odd that he's doing a sequel, but it is kind of his property and his baby. Right. And if, you know, it, and like we said, with it being an homage and being a major callback to the serialized uh, mm-hmm. TV, you know, that was their intention dramas, from the beginning. Westerns, you yeah. know, then that starts to fit the format there. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know, okay. no, that's a good that's a good uh, a good observation. I hadn't thought of that. That makes sense. Yeah. But he changes now in, in the mid 80s, 85. He's switching away from these summer blockbusters. The next film that he directs is The Color Purple, which is an adaptation of Alice (laughs) Walker's Pulitzer Prize winning novel from 1982. 
Yeah. It is a critical smash 11 Academy Award nominations, which probably goes without saying, because almost every one of these films, he gets at least three or four Academy right. Award nominations for. And then I didn't know this historically, but he, so in 87, China opened up again to Western investment. So he shot the first American film in Shanghai since the 1930s. Oh my gosh, I had no idea. He, yeah, he brings it back. So the opening of the Chinese film market. Now you see Mark Wahlberg is in some random Chinese produced film. You know, like that was Steven Spielberg started that up again in 87. Wow. Uh, the film was an adaptation, again, of a book by J.G. Ballard. It's called Empire of the Sun and yes. got six Academy Awards historical piece Christian Bale Christian Bale exactly it was his as first child as a child actor Christian yeah. Bale found him found Christian Bale at the age of God. 13 <laughs> I forget about that <laughs> so like, many oh, things yeah. we forget about that's entire Christian Bale's whole career is yeah. uh, probably because Steven Spielberg <laughs> in China <laughs> yeah found Batman <laughs> um speaking of Batman so Steven Spielberg goes back to blockbuster so the last crusade the the Indiana Jones business was the highest grossing film of 89. It beat out Batman in the worldwide box office, which everybody wow. was surprised by because Batman wow. seemed like a sure bet yeah. for that year. And then that same year did a his first romantic film called Always, which was a remake of another yes. film. Not an adaptation, but a remake. Yes, yes. I and smile had... when I think of this one because nobody remembers this. One. <laughs> right, <laughs> it was odd. It got well, very mixed reviews. Here we are, always. <laughs> yeah, the cover looks like a romantic, sappy film, and it is. Um, so people didn't really like that. Now, as we move into the '90s, he is producing Warner Brothers cartoon hits, Tiny Toons, Animaniacs, Pinky and the Brain. He's still got his producerial fingers in the pies. He, he just produced uh, the uh, uh, Roger Rabbit again. We'll mention right. for the third time. This is just this in, right in this time. Um, and so he's, which we did a whole episode on, and you should go. It's <laughs> amazing. But he's mixing it up still with the adaptation. So in 1991. He does a sequel to Peter Pan and Wendy called Hook. And part of I had his, no idea. Yeah. I had no idea that this was not critically received well, that this was kind of panned. I had I, my whole childhood. Mm -hmm. I grew up thinking this is just another Steven Spielberg smash. <laughs> <laughs> now it is. But at the time now and now it is. I think it's come around as you know, now that we're all adults, we're all mm -hmm. looking at each other. No, right. It was amazing. Yes, it was. Yeah. You know, he's in the midst of his career. He's won Oscars and Oscars. You know, he is changing Hollywood and he's still trying to figure out, you know, he's still, still trying to figure out what makes it tick. But right in the middle of that, he's not just making something about nothing that he doesn't know about. Like, mm -hmm. you think he's not thinking about Peter Pan and this version of Peter Pan who has grown up and forgotten yeah. who he is and mm -hmm. has lost touch with, him, with himself. <laughs> right. Are you, are you saying he just like, yeah, it's just a cash in. He just did that for the money. He certainly didn't yeah. give that any, any, every <laughs> any intimate everything, thought. everything he cares about. <laughs> so yeah, it's crazy how much he thinks about it. So in, in speaking to that, one of the things that he really wanted to do, and this is almost 10 years in the making, because he had said, oh, I wasn't mature enough to figure out a way to do this. He wanted to film Schindler's List after Hook. That, he wanted that to be his next film. The president of Universal gave him the green light, said, we'll help you with this, because on the surface, nobody has really tackled this subject matter in this way. Yeah. It's, it's something that's going to be big. 
but he said, we'll give you the green light, but you have to do this film that we already bought the rights to first that we want you to do. And it's called Jurassic Park. <laughs> and so that is where we are going to end this part one, ah. leaving you on the cliffhanger. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Taylor. Thank you so much. We'll pick it up with Jurassic Park next week. Yeah, still covering with uh, with Spielberg. So I, I know that we had some uh, some Spotify rap some shout outs there so thank you guys if we were in your top we saw a couple of those we're gonna get to uh ready player one next week so <laughs> right um yeah, yeah thank you guys for listening um that we'd love to see that kind of stuff i was really amazed at some of it so thank you guys what are you excited about you never know if we're gonna do an episode on it so you might as well get it on our radar uh send us the message at illiterate pod on instagram and uh we will finish the tale of steven spielberg <laughs> next week thank you guys what is up everyone this is illiterate my name is evan my name is taylor i read some stuff this week again we're covering spielberg part two of our series uh a little title you might be aware of jurassic park (laughs) it's one of my favorite movies actually i love it a lot as well I will go ahead and out myself at the top of the show. I and my fiance, we bought a Jurassic Park Jeep Wrangler this year. And so uh, Jurassic Park has been on my mind. Uh, why? <laughs> it's been such an amazing puzzle because what I'm left with is is the sense that when you're talking about adaptation, material working inside that format, there's not a better example almost than looking at Jurassic Park because what the novel is and what the novel does is exquisite for a novel Uh, and it is sharply about corporatism greed big big greedy corporate uh, interest getting involved with science and, and and things that they just don't that don't mesh with just the numbers game of profit and game yeah and the hammond character becomes central to it all in the book the hammond character is a hard line he wins he wins 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 and he doesn't care very very different person in in the in the film because i think what spielberg came to is that yes we can talk about corporate greed we can talk about big donor interest and oversight with science but what are we going to say? How are we going to say this through a lens that that audiences can relate to? And I think this is really where the genius comes in. Spielberg, I think, in the scripting of this, I mean, and he's intrinsically involved in the genesis of the film. Uh, he's friends with Michael Crichton, as we covered. Yeah. Uh, and he they had already bought the rights to it. Yeah. And so they're like, you have to do this. So he's like not said, precious he, yeah. with this material. I think that he gets in and is really able to, with the screenwriters, to hash out what about the book is going to translate and then what do we need to put around it to support it? Um, I think the genius comes in here, uh, opening it up and focusing in on Grant in the book. Grant is this, is, 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 is he likes kids in the movie. He's afraid of kids. The whole movie becomes about do Ellie and Grant want to be parents. And so if you make that shift, if you make that shift, everything shifts around it. And I think that it bears out and ripples throughout the entire thing. And it's such a smart decision uh, because I think that's where audiences really can engage and connect 
the book is not talking about the relationship between <laughs> parents and, and, and right. their children, really. The film is because the film decided it needed to be about the responsibility that comes with creation. That's a, okay. that's a perfect way to widen the lens. And so you can talk about the larger version there, God versus the devil right there with Hammond and Malcolm, or you can talk about the, the, the dirt and roots of it, you and me, mom and dad, Grant and Ellie. Yeah, that's awesome. And obviously audiences also related to it because this is, as we teased, takes the lead for the highest grossing film of all time. <laughs> so this is the third time his film is the highest grossing film ever. God, yeah. man, <laughs> he crushes it. The thing was with the with the making of this, Time Warner had wanted Spielberg because they had cash. So Universal had to sweeten the deal to get him over. To, that means they have to, the leverage. They had the, it's all about the leverage. <laughs> the leverage. So the thing that they put in his contract, they said Spielberg could serve as creative consultant on any theme park attractions related to his film and any film he directed would Ooh. stay at Universal. So the theme park consulting perk was 2% of all park ticket revenue, as well as park concession revenue, a portion of it in perpetuity. So that's still holding. So his annual payout for doing nothing for these theme parks of Universal exceeds $50 million every year. Gosh, what a great better thing than just being like, oh, well, I'll work for a different company for more money now. Yeah, that's really. why you got to look at them contracts. <laughs> yeah, really. But that's how it affected him personally, <laughs> and how he's the highest all throughout <laughs> the universe. <laughs> right. So that is how he excelled from from this small decision to say, "I want to, I want to do this." Um, but like we said oh before, the the reason he jumped into it was because he they said, "Okay, well, we'll help you with Schindler's List after." Right. So he was actually it's amazing working the, on them. The you had mentioned in the previous this. one, yeah. <laughs> So, you know, a, a hurricane to completely disrupts Jurassic Park's filming. So they had, had planned a week of on-the-ground shooting in Kauai that they totally had to cancel and replan and cut scenes and remove over. So Jurassic Park blows up in the middle of its production. And meanwhile, he's starting to prep uh, <laughs> Schindler's List, and he's going to edit Jurassic Park while he is shooting Schindler's List. I kid you not. Crazy. This is 1993. And they both come out then. Yeah. Schindler's uh, List based on a true story book called Schindler's Ark. He used the profits of it to set up the Shoah Foundation, which is a nonprofit that archives filmed testimony of Holocaust survivors. Oh my gosh. And I believe he's won several awards for their efforts. But 1994, a lot of people thought, okay, well, he's either done or is taking a very long break because he said, I'm not going to do anything after this. Like this, it really, Schindler's List took a toll on him. I mean, Schindler's List on its own would be emotionally rocking. I could not imagine what you would have left in the tanks after coming home shooting that. Yeah. But imagine that that was in the middle of a sprint and you shot something just as complex and crazy on a wildly different scale that takes totally different sensibilities, 100%, 180 degrees, and you walk from one set into the other. Right. From one recording studio to one editing bay. And you're on set doing now, you're doing the one and you're crying and it's it's, it's crazy and you just like, and you have to go, but okay, cut and you go into a room. Mm -hmm. Steven... So we are testing the new, uh, we're testing the new T-Rex roar, but we're not sure if it's deep enough. Does the bass on the, you know, like that's, that's the kind of calls. Yeah. And he's dealing with Schindler's list. 
I just, I cannot overstate. And what I think about, I mean, anytime I think about this, I think about making uh, Gone with the Wind <laughs> and The Wizard of Oz coming out the same year and the right. same person making them, <laughs> which we don't think about. And it feels, yeah. and I'm like, as I'm saying that's it right crazy. now, I'm like, I'm, am I wrong about this? And I don't think I am because that's how wild it is that the same person made two crazy movies in the same year. That's, that's the Spielberg way as well, for sure. So he's taking this break. And ends up, though, after a couple of years, building this studio, now we know it as DreamWorks, with Jeffrey Katzenberg and David Geffen. That's the SKG that shows up in the, uh, mm, the bottom where it says DreamWorks yeah. SKG. It stands for Spielberg, Katzenberg, Geffen. Ah. Katzenberg was in charge of the Disney Renaissance, Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Lion King. He was yeah. the head of Disney for all that stuff. Jeez. And then Geffen created Asylum Records, Geffen Records. Most modern rock pop bands that you know, he was the record <laughs> label for. So all of them making a production company. The logo music for <laughs> DreamWorks, I just thought this was cool. <laughs> Please. You guessed it, John Williams. <laughs> <laughs> uh, dun, dun, dun. I can't even do it, but the... Yeah, yeah, that's John. That's John. That's old. That's old Johnny Williams coming back in. <laughs> um so now he's off his break. 1996, he directs The Lost World, which is a loose adaptation. You know more about it than I do of book two. Yeah, it is a bit looser and it's regarded as not quite as not as tight. I really am a defender of the movie. I think it's not. I think it's yes, it's not as as tight as Jurassic Park is. But it is still, and if you want to look at what maybe what has happened to this franchise over the last few years, if you look at why this franchise exists and what is happening in the second one here, this movie is all about familial relationship. It's not about nothing but that. Mm -hmm. uh, Malcolm now, you know, is is back and he's between relationships alive. and he, you know he's alive yeah which is a total of 180 is it's inspired i think we went over in the uh, michael crichton epi episode is that uh you know the the film was so in, so crazy and, and had such life to it that it inspired michael crichton to bring the character back from the dead who had died <laughs> in the novel and now he's the star he really you know michael crichton himself you know had enough wherewithal to go he, well, that's the voice really of what i want to say what michael crichton mm -hmm. had to say lies right in uh, the the uh, Malcolm character. Without that character, there's no more Jurassic yeah. Park, especially for Michael Crichton. So Michael Crichton writes the next book. You know the other characters, which were the really the focal point of the movie, nowhere to be seen. It's all about Malcolm. And now his. Well, and I wanted to I wanted life. to bring yeah, up because yeah, yeah. we had uh, talked about, and I forgot to mention this when we talked about Sherlock Holmes and the fact that. Arthur Conan Doyle brought Sherlock Holmes back by popular demand after he oh, threw him yeah. off the waterfall. So. Michael Crichton is said in an interview, he got the idea from Sherlock Holmes where he's like, well, if he can bring somebody back that people liked, well, I can yes. do that for my thing. Yes. So there's actually <laughs> Arthur Conan Doyle before he wrote Sherlock Holmes was writing these novels and things. And his 1912 novel is about a world where prehistoric animals have survived this island that they find. It's called that the name of that book is called The Lost World. So he mm -hmm. even titled Michael Crichton titled the book as an homage to Arthur Conan Doyle and the idea of bringing somebody back. So he yes. wholeheartedly embraced that and adapted his thing. Look, it's on else, its face is acknowledging it, which yeah. you, know, you hardly know. You know, nobody knows. It. I had no idea. <laughs> Like, that's yeah. incredible, actually. So, I mean, I, so what was the second biggest film of 1997? Thank God I was there. <laughs> uh, 
second biggest. So Titanic beat it, which I was became, there too. <laughs> then became the new record holder, which beat out Jurassic Park one. But he would have had a fourth highest grossing everything away again we have these ebbs and flows of big epic things and more historical a la schindler's list or personal kind of things so amistad comes out in 97 which is based on the book mutiny on the amistad which is about the 1839 slave ship i just thought the, the way that he found out about this so there's this gal debbie allen who's more known as a dancer choreographer who had found this book and had wanted this to be a project and ended up getting 10 minutes with him because he's hard to get to they ended up talking for an hour and a half and she was just like oh he got it and he's like you know this is going to be hard to do they want it to be a musical like people didn't get but spielberg got it you know she was like once i saw that he made schindler's list i knew that he could do things like this right and so this was the first directed work of his to be under the dreamworks pictures oh wow super huge when it came out the very next year another historical epic piece saving private ryan which the writer of that got from the book d-day by stephen ambrose and it's based on the real story of the nyland brothers Mm -hmm. Uh, but this in terms of war movies my god influenced combat violence yes how it's presented filmically black hawk down enemy at the gates video games the medal of honor series call of duty like they all have the landing of d-day Yeah, the visual style of that film has permeated and lasted in our lexicon. It really has uh, just a staying power that Mm -hmm. I think goes beyond the just even the film itself. It just is part of the language of those images. Mm -hmm. It just is intrinsic to it now. Yeah. So now we move on to the 2000s and beyond, kind of the weirder years, starting with a film project from a friend of his, Stanley Kubrick. AI, which uh, was based on a 1969 short story. And Spielberg tried very hard, I think, and which is why he is not, it's not a, a well-known or well-regarded one, because he was trying to, I think, put together Kubrick's vision yeah. with sort of a Spielberg lens. He was trying to do it justice in a different... Well, uh, Kubrick had been developing this for years. He had started this in the 80s. And for the longest time, didn't think that the film could be made because of, number one, it's technically advanced just in what you're going to be doing with it. But the Teddy character in particular, they didn't know how they were going to pull that off. And so it kind of bummed around and just was developing for years and years and years. And we got into the 90s and Kubrick is on record himself saying that the sensibilities of what this story is, is really a story that's built for somebody like Steven Spielberg, not me. Mm. So this is uh, an interesting place because it's the year 2001, and he has backed out of doing an all-kids movie, Harry Potter, because he uh-huh. said he wasn't ready to take on that. And there's been a couple of things that he's quoted as saying either like, oh, well, not because it was this massive franchise, but because he knew, oh, this is going to be so big, like there is no challenge to it. And he wanted to do it perhaps right. animated or like it has to be something that hits him in a way that he can commit two or right. three years to. And if it's and not, his, it's not thing, right. it's his thing, but it's just interesting that he, he didn't, he was semi-involved for several months <laughs> in the development of it and then didn't do it and did AI. Looking at AI now at, with an adult eye, while his movies touch me and they're some of my favorite movies of all time, the, this one makes me cry and on a, on a deep, deep, sad level that his other films just do not reach. I think this film is injected with the lost confusion of 
a child trying to understand their reason for being here or why that their relationship that should be there isn't there. He's, he's done it beautifully. And I think that this, I think this film is underrated and I stick up for it. And I think, I think over time we're going to be thinking about it as maybe one of his best. And maybe that's why he didn't do Harry Potter because he, he wasn't feeling, <laughs> we'd have a very different Harry Potter if he took those feelings. Right. <laughs> I, and he was, he, he had a good relationship with, with Kubrick. I think he was really, mm-hmm. really rocked by the death of Kubrick. They were friends. Like this, we talk about these people as artists and, you know, idols and all that kind of, you know, like we're, <sighs> these people knew each other for real. Yeah. And so we have to take a moment and think about that, that uh, this person disappeared off the face of the earth and his friend was left with the baggage of this project that he said you'd be better for. Yeah. So now that he has completed this more personal work, he's kind of doing a bunch of different, what seems to me like random stuff in the, in the two thousands and on. Yeah. Um, minority. Yeah. Report, I mean, yeah. yeah. Minority. Re- he goes on that two on that cruise rampage. <laughs> minority report. I mean, we're in the wake of nine yeah. 11 right here. Minority oh, report yeah. and uh, war of the war of the worlds come out. Right up on each other. Yeah. I think 2002 and, and 2005. We're in yeah. the wake of 9-11. I think that's heavy on his mind. I think that's clear in War of the Worlds. I think <laughs> everybody is wondering what we're supposed to do with it. In the middle of that, he does, guess what? Catch me if you can. Catch me if you can. Get but, another intensely emotional film. Mm-hmm. It's a quiet, dramatic film in a, in a lot of ways. All of and those we- based on books, based on... <laughs> Something that he's bye bye him bye bye him bye bye him God I mean is it really like God it's got to be seven out of ten yeah <laughs> adaptations <laughs> yeah uh, and then 2005 same year as War of the Worlds Munich based on the 1984 book Vengeance another historical piece right. one of his more controversial ones because the book some people say was either somewhat fictionalized or like the actual people involved were not approached to consult so it's kind of this now we see these more like oh well. People accept it because it's a, a semi biographical right. thing. Like, right. did any of that really happen that way? Well, they didn't ask anybody that was even in it. So Who? some of that stuff is contentious. But uh, 2006 rolls around. He says he wanted to direct a scientifically accurate film about a group of explorers who travel through a wormhole to another dimension. And there was a treatment mm-hmm. by this guy, Kip Thorne, who's a theoretical physicist. Jonathan Nolan met with him about turning it into a screenplay. So Spielberg later abandoned it and it became interstellar many years later. But this started in 2006 with Spielberg. Where he's yeah, I read that uh, years that. ago. I feel nobody knows that. I was like, in, actually incredible <laughs> to mm-hmm. hear the, how long that that movie has had really been kicking around. Yeah, and then 2007, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull comes out. He likes it, defends it, but most people are like, "Well, that's here." Here comes the really is Spielberg lost his touch. What in the world is he mm-hmm. doing? And then he explores some more. Tintin with Peter Jackson comes out based on the comics. Right. 2011 War Horse also comes out based on a novel adapted from a hit play before that. And then Lincoln, based on the Pulitzer Prize winning book Team of Rivals in 2012. Bridge of Spies follows. So it seems like he's really doing these historical pieces, like he's not in the family. In the post. Father. Yeah, yeah. gosh. Yeah. So (laughs) yeah, the, the, the post was... Filmed and edited as we move on. So he also had the BFG, which I guess was his only kind of childlike thing. Rattling him off, though. (laughs) Interesting. I mean, it's we got to take note. You know, I mean, he's really doing them one after another. 
if you judge one on its own, I don't know what they say. Looking at it as a whole, it's interesting. He seems to really be dipping his hands into some new new waters. Here. New things. That's all. Uh, that's the all interesting thing is yeah. like, yeah, yeah. It's like, did audiences go? Not all the time, but <laughs> most of you know they, enough to get the next one done. Or but you, I think you've heard I think of. He's these. increasingly feeling that the that the industry is changing, and he's mm-hmm. feeling some of that brunt too. Mm-hmm. I know by the time that Lincoln comes out, he's talking about. Uh, even at his stature, like wondering positioning of where this film is going to live. Is this going to be like an HBO film, you know, <laughs> right. like that kind of even. Yeah. And that's years and years ago at this point, which now we would see is kind of commonplace. But he's, you know, that he's already feeling the effects of, of the coming tide that is yeah. the digital streaming right. and theatrical crisis that we're now living in. He was feeling that 10 years ago. <laughs> right. So I wanted to bring up because somebody had asked about it on Instagram, the Film Ready Player One is the yes. next one that comes out. But I just you had mentioned the post. That was filmed, edited, and released during the post-production of Ready Player One. So that's, oh my God. How, that's how much he's doing on multiple projects. He completed oh the entirety of a film just on the post-production. That's when, well, that's yeah. interesting because the the Ready Player One is a is a movie of two movies because there's a live action element mm-hmm. to it, and then there's a large you know, large Largely, the film is yeah. uh, a 3D film that takes place inside the game world. Yeah. So the physical production of that shoot of Ready Player One, an incredibly contained small shoot in, in, in relative terms of what you think of the scale of that movie mm-hmm. and a Steven Spielberg production. Well, when you actually put Bones to Nuts out on the, on the pavement, it's kind of a small thing. And it really is all taking place in the computer. That explains a massively long post-production process <laughs> yeah. wherein you can do a whole live action film. Yeah. And, so would, and release it and win some Oscars before the other films. <laughs> he's the, the most challenging film since Saving Private Ryan due to all those VFX. Wow. I believe it. Yeah. Um, I mean, then, I, I saw I saw him uh, using the soft like the avatar, you know, method of the, the actors mo capping out on a soundstage. And he just right. looks like a kid. He's just got his little <laughs> monitor and like, oh, look, he's there in like they're in black suits. But look, there he, he's a demon. Yeah, <laughs> he's, he's just playing. You look, you know, he still looks like that kid in the behind the scenes photos for you in his his five hundred dollar war movie. Yeah. Uh, you know, just kind of playing around. What will this look like? Well, from this angle, does that work? Oh, that's fun can you do that again do that again oh that's fun mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> he's it's it's amazing to see this 70 year old just like <laughs> bounce around curious yeah yeah the, the it was of course based on this book by ernest klein the rights were bought by warner brothers a year before the book came out kind of like with jurassic park and whatnot where like this thing came out mm-hmm. in 2010 but they had already decided we want this to turn it into yeah. something so this is eight years in the making the rights became easier with Spielberg's reputation, like with Roger Rabbit, where he's got the keys to the kingdom. So he can ask and, and leverage to get he's got the leverage <laughs> to get all the all the random references from the 70s, 80s and 90s. It took several years to procure all of the different things that they wanted that the book has or that he changed to make into a different reference. So, for example, just mm-hmm. some, some notable ones. Blade Runner was off limits only because oh. Blade Runner 2049 was in production 
and they uh, couldn't use that property. So he switched it to The Shining, which honors his friend Stanley Kubrick, like we talked about. Yes, exactly. If you wanted, if you didn't know that they were friends and didn't think they were <laughs> friends, the, the, the fact that, the, you know, the, if, you, if you're if you familiar with Ready Player One, The Shining is not what takes place. Yeah. In, yeah, exactly. So that that is the obvious. It's not just because he thought it was a sweet movie. It's like, he, you know, like he What's is. Also, he, yeah. What's also interesting in terms, in terms of the collaboration, the Dr. Sleep film, the production was going on at the same time, and they used uh, some of the CGI elements to help recreate the hotel for that film. Oh, incredible. <laughs> so I love that. I love, and, and, and it's so rare that you see productions actually talk, being able to talk and share with each other. So that makes it, and that actually makes it. Also, of why sense. would both beautiful. be CGI recreations of the Overlook Hotel? What <laughs> are the chances <laughs> that two productions would need that? Well, they did. So there you go. In the same year. Yeah. God, what kind of dice were through? It was like, okay, we got 2018 and uh, Overlook. <laughs> yeah. Um, so. They said they got about 80% of the material that they wanted. A fascinating one that they could not get was Close Encounters from Columbia. <laughs> <laughs> they wanted to use oh, elements of that and they couldn't. That's so sad. That's like, give it to them. It's like one of his like most personal ones. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the thing was, it, it probably wouldn't have even mattered because Spielberg opted to remove a lot of the references that Klein yeah. made from the books to his film because, and that we had mentioned this in the first episode of this series, where Due to the criticism of 1941, which he was lampooning Jaws and Duel and his other stuff, and he was too big for his britches, he was like, I don't want to do that again. So he didn't want to put, and Ernest Cline, who wrote the book, fought to have the DeLorean in there because he's like, well, you produced it, but you didn't direct it. And then the T-Rex from Jurassic Park is so classic. He had to have it in there. But uh, Cline said he has no idea because the the reason we're talking about it more than anything else is that the Ready Player Two, the sequel book, came out at the end of November of this year. Yeah, hot, hot, fre- hot and fresh. I've got a friend that's in the middle of it right now. Um, and, and, they're said that it's it's still picking up. Mm-hmm. But they're interested, but there's a cool twist of what they've done with the antagonist. So I'm I'm interested to see what yeah. what their thoughts on it are going forward. And talking about how the original one was picked up before the book even came out. Yeah, you'd think. Oh, Spielberg, oh, it's something he liked. But again, talking about Jaws all over again, but you're 70 years old. He's like, I don't know. Klein said, I don't know if Spielberg would do it again. Like we said, it's like it's the third hardest film he's ever made. It was the hardest film since Saving Private Ryan. It took all this work to get. It took years. I think it's a really interesting one. Okay, Spielberg likes to talk about the relationship you have to your creation. And he's over time has been trying to, you know, work out especially where he stands in those relationships at that time. Well, he's on the back end of his career now. You know, he gets to kind of put himself in place of the uh, patriarch here of the uh, the corporation. It's very interesting that he decides to do this movie because it seems to take that on. You'd have to be too honest with yourself Mm -hmm. about where you are in your life. Yeah. Um, and well, relating we, that directly to that material. I mean, uh, you're saying that the the director of the film feels like the lost, forgotten, minimized creator that really just has fun engaging in the things that make them light up. Yeah. I mean, it's right there. <laughs> With the mocap suits. Yeah. <laughs> so it'll be interesting to see because the next thing he's slated to do, obviously he's got a million things in the fire, you know, but the thing that definitely is being made and has been worked on and was supposed to come out, 
I think this month and was pushed to 2021 is West Side Story, the musical. Oh, yes. So I have no idea how that relates to Steven Spielberg and his personal journey, but it'll be interesting to see how does he what what drew you know, he's so selective. What? Right. Why did he pick? I think he's also just trying to do things that are hard, like a musical. A classic musical. Exactly. That, exactly. You know, I think that not? has everything to do with it. Yeah. I think he's done everything, and he. You know, I think. I think what, what I was saying. If you look at these other movies he's done over the last you know decade or two, and looking at them one on their own, I don't know what they say, but if you look at them, well, I think he's playing with stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, and I think West Side Story is about playing with a genre that maybe he's always been too timid to really jump into. Well, what? Who cares? Mm-hmm. Why not? Let's do it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So let's get into some of the some of the legacy stuff like you said what he's playing around with where he has put his energy over the years even outside of this stuff. Super into video games, which was surprising to me. Dreamworks Interactive was a video game arm of Dreamworks in the 1990s and he created Medal of Honor, the game series by EA. Oh my gosh, I didn't know that. Because I was like, oh, they copied <laughs> Saving Private Ryan. And it's like, no, okay. no, no, Steven Spielberg was the story, yeah. right? Like he wrote the stories for that. So movie. if you didn't believe us about Saving Private Ryan's visuals <laughs> permanently altering the zeitgeist of, you know, war media. Yeah. Uh, it goes further than just even just that. It's a, yes, it is Steven Spielberg wholesale. <laughs> He, and he, he, he owns all the most recent consoles. I thought it was funny in an interview I read. He criticizes cutscenes in video games. He doesn't like <laughs> them. He's like, that's the challenge of video games. How do you make the story flow naturally in with the gameplay? That's the exciting challenge mm-hmm. for the developers. It's just you'd think he'd want <laughs> more of that. Gosh, but that's not why he like he you know he knows the medium. We had mentioned earlier that he dropped out of Cal State. In right. Long Beach. He went back and got his bachelor's in film in 2002 when he was oh 56 years old. Oh my God. Because he was like, you got to complete your education. It took me <laughs> dozens of more years, but I still got it done. Even like did that professor over there like, what? Okay. <laughs> I guess, uh, take this test on this. Yeah. It's like a Spielberg guy. We're teaching uh, you. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> We're using your movies as uh, lessons here. You can't just turn in Schindler's List every assignment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he but he did it. Um, so let's get to the the meat of the whole thing. How does he do this? How does How in he, the world? Every single time we see, <laughs> How does he do? He's got uh, at least a film a year or two or every other. I mean, it's just and he's. We also forgot to mention he more has more than ever. He has DreamWorks and Amblin Entertainment. He produced. Every other thing that you know, Shrek, Men in Black, Transformers, you know, like he's produced oh, stuff he's never even read. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he's done he it doesn't all. Doesn't have time to read it. How does he do it all? And, and the thing <laughs> that I yeah. think from looking at all of this, obviously immense talent from the beginning. Joan Crawford said it when he was 21 on the first set. Right. Beyond that, though, we talk about him all the time. It's a village. Like all of these people that it takes to make films, like you said, he is the emotional resonance, but he's also the leader behind it all. And I think the big thing is perpetually working with the same people over and over and over again, the collaborators that he has. So Janusz Kaminski is the cinematographer since Schindler's List, 1993. He's done everything up to Ready Player One. He's done. 
He's been the cinematographer oh behind the camera. And then Michael Kahn has been the editor since Close Encounters. From 1977, wow. he's had the same yeah. editor that he's worked with. Rick Carter has been the production designer since Jurassic Park for at least 10 of the films after that. He's been the production designer for. So Jeez. it's just like consistently these people over and over again that he's working with. And I'm sure, God, since 77, you've been working with the same guy for 40 years. Like you better have a shared yeah, <laughs> a rapport. No, and, and that's also how he's able to, it's like, how can he be working on sign language? Yeah. How can he be working on three things at once? Well, he knows that person and knows what to say and trusts and can, and can build a, yeah, a workflow. He is a business. He is a machine when it comes. That's where you have to boil it down. Is like, what are the what are the things that only Stephen can do? And that's those are the things that he has to do. Which is like, okay, I've got to read this. <laughs> right. Okay, I've got to storyboard this. Okay, I need I'll to let read this, this person novel. do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It's like you do that. A yes on that. I like it in green. <laughs> you know, it's just like, in the, like you have, it's a, like a process of we of weeding out mm -hmm. the things that you can hand off to the people that you trust that you have a rapport with that you go okay i'm thinking this but here what what do you make of that go um and then they come back and you go and then they present some options but it's like he's he he has a working rapport with people that he just trusts and there's nothing more valuable than that and then lastly i think tying back into that rapport and familiarity working on adaptations he is as we see the master of adaptations and it's because not only does he pull from other things but he pulls from not just the material, but other films, even himself. So like you said, Jaws is a reworking of his first film, Duel. Close Encounter yes. and Hook is pulling from Disney's stuff. War of the Worlds is a different interpretation of Close Encounters. Raiders of the Lost Ark is talking from the 1940s serialized films. Yeah. You know, Tintin is based on every other Tintin film tried to do. He changed how it was doing. You know, right. he, he's adapted what we might call airport novels like Jaws and Jurassic Park. He's also done literary fiction, The Color Purple. He did short stories. He did comic books. He did children's books, autobiographies, nonfiction, you know, all Gosh. everything he's building on either himself, something he's already done or um, an array of different uh, different materials, different types of literary works. So I think that that's like where you can say, oh, how is he able to do all this? Because he's pulling from everything, all the people he works with and all the material that exists out there. It takes all that stuff and you can really get, you can really get somewhere. And this is somebody that just, I think he is, I think from people who don't study film and don't, you know, look at this stuff the way that, that we do. I think he, you know, he's just some sort of mad magician. It's like, mm -hmm. I think, I think, no, I think he is more like the guy in Ready Player One who's kind of more nervous and small and just likes to tinker with the things that he really enjoys. And he's got some real, you know, deep rooted questions and thoughts and feelings about the people that he loves, like we all do. Yeah. And he knows how to get people to <laughs> play his music and act in his stuff and yeah. put up his mom puts up the marquee on the on the thing and exactly. sells the tickets and makes a dollar making them part of it. yeah yeah uh, yeah it takes a village my god well amazing that is it that is it <laughs> our steven spielberg series is complete there's yeah. so we skipped over so many things but again uh, and, and and like i said you know like somewhere down the line the next Jurassic park movie will come out and we'll take that as an opportunity to go back and look at at the first two and maybe reopen the innards of that more and the other other movies as they become relevant things he does he's done or come back around or remade or he does more things so that's not the end of steven spielberg but 
this was really great. I'm really, I'm really, really thankful for you guys coming along for this journey. Well, as always, if you have any suggestions, comments, critiques, curse words, send us a message at, <laughs> <We> Ill- <laughs> at illiteratepod on Instagram. And uh, thank you all. We'll catch you next week. Yeah.